1: All right, now listen up, boys. Y'all want to be good sheep herders and all, don't you? Two things you need to know. Number one, stay awake. And number two, you ask questions. You know, Benji, Benji, you don't have to ask questions now, all right? No, well, I mean, you can ask a question. I mean, you know, if something don't look right or, you know, if you got a strange feeling in your gut, then yeah, ask a question. For example, uh, that that night when all those angels visited, yeah. Well, everyone else was asleep, not me, I was awake, just like my daddy taught me. Darn right I'm bragging, that's what separates men from the boys, son. So like I said, I was sitting there by the campfire, wide awake, and I just got this flutter in my gut. Like you know something's gonna happen, like something big's gonna happen, but you just don't know what it is, you know? I think that's it. You just don't know what you don't know. But I walk over that rise, and then bingo. I'm looking at the biggest, scariest angel I ever did see. Not that I ever saw one, you know. And you know what the first thing out of that angel's mouth was? Don't be afraid. Too late. And then that angel... He's got this nice look on his face. He said, "Uh, I've got a message to tell you. And then the big old angel said, a baby got born tonight. And he's going to save the world. And then a mess of them angels came around. And they were saying, glory to God glory to God in the highest that's what they just kept saying and then they was gone well I don't need to tell you that we don't get invitations like that you know being crusty old sheep and all but we went to Bethlehem and I met that mama and that baby boy I think they were a little shocked to see us but we told him about the angels and all. I think that tickled her pink. And then we all just kind of stood there, just making sure everything was okay. Kind of like when a new lamb is born. And about the time you figured out everything's going to be fine, you just settle in, and you just kind of take in the whole thing. That's what we were doing. But this was different. Because underneath that big bright star, we were watching the world saving baby. And we got to brag on him a bit. And Benji, this old soul, It's been awake ever since.
2: Before we see the passage that we just read, before the host of heaven announcement of the birth of Jesus, starting in verse 8, we see the account of how the birth of Christ actually came about in Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. Stories told of a curious bystander, and he he was watching as a blacksmith was hammering out a horseshoe. And when the blacksmith was finished with the horseshoe, he placed it aside to let it cool. And without thinking, the very interested bystander picked it up to look more closely, and of course he sat it down even more quickly. With a twinkle in his eye, the blacksmith turned to the man and said, Hot, wasn't it? Not to be made light of, the observer responded, nope. It just doesn't take me long to inspect horseshoes. You know, I think you could say the same thing about Luke's presentation of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't take him very long to articulate to us in seven short verses the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And we really don't get many details, do we? For such a hugely significant event as the birth of Jesus, we get scant details, right? There is a census. Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. The time comes for her to give birth. There's no room in the inn. So she gives birth in a stable. And remember, this is the only account that we get. In all four Gospels, we get one account of the actual birth Of Jesus. And that's really scant to what we see coming next, starting in verse 8, right? The angels, their visit by the shepherds, and then the shepherds visit to see the baby Jesus. Why is that? Why do we only get seven short verses about the actual birth of Jesus? Well, I think it's because Luke is more concerned about answering the question, our question. What child is this? Then he is about answering the question, what were the the details surrounding his birth? See, Luke cares more about telling us about who Jesus is than filling in the details surrounding his birth. And one of the ways that he does that is in our passage today with, yet again, angelic revelation concerning the birth and the person of Jesus Christ. So, starting in verse 8. It answers the question for us at least in three ways. What child is this? You know, when, when parents these days uh, have children, it's a, it's a very common practice, right, in our culture to send what is known as a birth announcement. I'm sure when you had children, maybe you sent out birth announcements. I'm sure you have received in the mail birth announcements. Very, it's very common. I think we did this for all four of our children I don't know if Deborah got left out or not, but I know we did it at least for three, probably four. And, of course, when you do it, it's somewhat after the fact, right? It's sort of a formality. People know that you have had a baby because it takes several weeks. You line up a photographer, right? You have to get the pictures printed, and then you mail them out. And so it's sort of after the fact. And not only that, but we send birth announcements to people we know right? To people that we think should know or should care about the birth of our child. People we love. People we think should know about it. So for us, birth announcements, well, they usually happen sometime after the fact, and they're limited in scope, right? We don't send birth announcements to everyone. Well, contrast that with what we see starting in verse 8. As we make our way into the text, we see that that God the Father, that God the Father gives a birth announcement, if you will, concerning the birth of his son. But unlike our birth announcements, his birth announcement was immediate. It happened on the very night of Jesus' birth. And not only was it immediate, but it was unlimited, right? This was a birth announcement that was intended for all people. So let's take a look, starting in verse 8. The text reads this way, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. Now this is interesting. It's fascinating that God would choose to send a birth announcement to shepherds because shepherds were pretty low on the totem pole in Jewish culture. Number one, because their job, like Mike Rowe's job, it was a dirty job, right? It was a dirty job. They worked with stupid, stinky sheep. And so they were kind of low on the totem pole, but not only that, but that made them ceremonially unclean. And so they couldn't be a regular part of the temple worship. And not only that, they were known for being crooks. They were known for being dishonest. Because how easy would it be, oh, that sheep just disappeared in the middle of the night, right? They weren't the most honest of people. Yet, this is the type of people who first got to hear about the birth of Jesus. It was people of lowly origin and people of lowly reputation who first received the gospel. The gospel of God's grace, they they received it and they believed it, and then they proclaimed it joyfully to others. It was those shepherds. It was those shepherds as they tended their sheep who would be the first to hear about the Lamb of God, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How ironic is it that these shepherds who tended those sheep The very sheep that they were tending that very night most likely were used in temple sacrifices in the city of Jerusalem just miles away. And now they get to hear of the ultimate Lamb of God, right? The real sacrificial Lamb. So in response, we see in verse 10, the angel, don't be afraid. I've got good news. Three things I think we learn That answer the question, what child is this? Well, number one, he is good news. His birth is good news. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So the angel says, I've got got good news for you. Good news. And it's not news that's just the birth of Jesus, but, but Jesus himself. He is the good News. His arrival is the best news ever. The word here in the New Testament is euangelizo, which simply means to announce good news. That's what the angel was doing. He was announcing to them and to the world the best news ever. It's the verb form of the word euangelion, which simply means good news. And in your New Testament, you may see it rendered the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's the best news Ever. Jesus, who is God, is the good news because of what he would do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see this same word pop up again, the euangelion, the gospel. And Paul tells us that, in these words, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that the gospel is that he was buried. And that the good news is that he was raised on the third day. See, Jesus is good news. The birth of Jesus is good news. Because he would live a perfect life of obedience to God that he requires of us, that not a single one of us could meet. He would live that life for us, and then he would die for our sins on the cross, bearing our shame, taking our punishment. And not only that, but he would rise from death, defeating death forever. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the birth of Jesus. This is the best news ever. Can you think of any better news than that? I was thinking about this term this week, about circumstances and times in my life when I have received good news, when good news has come into my life that brought me great joy, when I received my acceptance letter, uh, in the mail, to go to the college of my choice. I, it was good news. It made me happy. I had great joy. When my wife said yes when I proposed, good news of great joy. When we found out we were pregnant with our kids, good news of great joy. And I'm sure that you have a list like that. If you were to think about times that you have received news that just brought you joy, it was great news. But friends, if you're a Christian today, then at the top of that list is the day that you heard and trusted in the good news, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. But let me ask a question. Who is this good news intended for? Who is this good news for? Is it it for some people? Is it for people worthy of God's grace? Is it for those who are pretty good and just need a little bit of help to, uh, to get into heaven? No, of course not. What does the angel say? He says, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for what? For all the people. For all the people. Jesus came for all people because, listen, everybody needs him. Everybody needs him. And so the news of the birth of Jesus and what he would do is intended and needed for everyone. He tells the shepherds in verse 11 something that is a second answer to our question. What child is, is this? He's good news. He is good news. But not only that, starting in verse 11, we see that he is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Verse 11, For today, the angel said, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The good news, both for, for them and for us, was that in Bethlehem, in the the city of David, a reference to Bethlehem, that a baby has been born, and that that baby is for everyone. It's for me, it's for you. Who is this baby? Here in verse 11, we get three titles of Jesus. Three titles, if you will, that describe to us who this child is. Three significant titles. Jesus is his formal name. Trey is my formal name. But you may call me pastor. It's a title. It indicates what I do, right? Um, these titles that we see of Jesus are indicative of who he is and what he would do. We see three of them in a very unique phrase in all of the New Testament. In fact, this phrase, Savior, Christ the Lord, it's found only here. So first, what child is this? He is Savior, right? He is, he is Savior. Let's think about that term just for a minute. What is a savior? A savior is one who delivers us from danger or destruction, right? A savior is one who delivers or saves somebody else from danger or from destruction. And in our culture today, many people are deemed or are considered or are called saviors, little s, saviors, right? So, So sometimes politicians can be seen as saviors. Saviors to their political party or saviors to a state or to to even a nation. In our culture, often athletes are considered to be saviors, right? A sports team acquires a star player, and what do they say of him? He's going to save the franchise, right? He is a a savior. Sometimes even coaches can be considered saviors. Down in my neck of the woods, uh, where I grew up, my alma mater recently hired a new college football coach, and they paid him the richest contract in college football history. And there is talk. What is he going to be for our football program? He's going to be a savior. He's going to take us out of mediocrity into the promised land, right? He's a savior. CEOs are deemed to be saviors. First responders can be saviors, right? In our culture, many people are seen as saviors. So here's the question that is before us. How is this little baby, how is this little helpless baby born in Bethlehem a savior? Because just think about it. We don't typically think of babies as saviors, do we? I mean, this is kind of odd. The angel says, a savior has been born. And he has a diaper on, right? He's, he's, he's lying there. Um, we don't think of babies as saviors. They, they cry, and they sleep, and they poop, and that's about it, right? That's all they do. And yet, this baby is a savior? Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 21, the angel tells us how this baby is going to be a Savior. He says he will save his people from their sins. So now we know what type of Savior this baby is going to be, right? He is going to save or deliver us from the danger and the destruction that our sin causes, right? He is a Savior from sin. So it begs another question. In what way is sin destructive? In what way does our sin cause us to be in danger? Why do we need saving from it? At least in three ways, the Bible says. Number one, sin destroys our relationship with God, first and foremost. He created us to know him, to love him, to be in relationship with him, but after Adam's fall, we all were bent In nature towards sin and rebellion and folly. And we are born as enemies rather than friends of God. And then out of that nature we sin against Him. We break His commandments. We are rebels at heart. And then we incur His righteous wrath and justice. We deserve physical death. We deserve spiritual death because of our sins. We need deliverance from it. And so sin destroys our relationship with God. The Bible says that sin, in a sense, destroys our relationship with ourself. In other words, it is destructive to us. God made us to love him upwards and to love others outwards. But um, our sin causes us to be inward focused, to be inward bent. We are self-centered creatures. And all you need to do is have a baby to find that out. Right? We are self-centered, self-loving, self-exalting creatures. And it destroys us. It destroys our lives. And we sin against others, do we not? Sinners sin against sinners. And in this way, friends, sin is devastating. We need saving from it, do we not? We are in a helpless estate. And so into this mess is born a baby. Into this mess is born a Savior. He is our Savior, but not only that. The angel says, He is Christ, right? He is Christ the Lord. Two titles in one phrase. He is Christ. We'll, we'll begin with that. He is Christ. It's the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's the transliteration of the Old Testament word, Messiah, or Messiah. And it simply means anointed one. He is the anointed one. It refers to one who is set aside to do something specific unto God, to be consecrated unto a specific service or purpose um, for God. And it's interesting. In the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, prophets were anointed. That is, the people who spoke on behalf of God, right? God spoke to his people through the prophets. They spoke the word of God. They were anointed priests. They were intercessors between God and the people. And and how did they do that? They offered sacrifices, right, to cover the sins of the people. They were mediators. Priests in the Old Testament were anointed. And kings who were to lead the people, they were anointed. And so, friends, what do we see Christ doing when he comes? We see that he is the anointed one. We see that he is the prophet of God. He speaks for God because he is God himself. He is the great prophet. He is, he is our high priest. Hebrews tells us that, right? That unlike the other priests that offered uh, animal sacrifices over and over and over again that could not atone for sin, our great high priest comes. And what does he offer? He offers himself, does he not? He lays down his very life to intercede on our behalf and he is the great king we've seen this theme in this christmas season he is the lord's anointed he will rule on david's throne he is the king of kings he is the christ he is the anointed one but not only that what does the angel say he is the savior he is he is christ and he is the lord he is the lord it's the, it's a word in greek that simply refers to one who is a master over slaves or servants the master, the Lord, or he is, he is an owner. He owns things. And in this sense, it, it can refer to human beings, but oftentimes this word, kurios, Lord, it, it refers to God. And here it refers to Jesus. He is the ultimate master, is he not? He is the ultimate owner. And so what child, what child is this? He's good news. He is born to be our savior. He is the anointed one of God, and he is God incarnate. He is nothing less than God in a manger. And that leads us to our third answer to our question. What child is this? In verse 12, we see that he is a humble king. He is a humble king. Notice what the angels say to the shepherds in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, unusual, I mean usual, and lying in a manger, unusual. So, how are are these shepherds to know which baby it is? They're to go to Bethlehem, a baby has been born, well, which baby? How do we know which baby is the Savior? How do they know which baby is the Christ? How will they know which baby is the Lord? Well, he says this is a sign. This is an, an indicator. He'll be wrapped in cloths, and he will be lying in a manger. Now, just think about that for a moment. Um, that would strike them as odd, because typically you don't find babies lying in mangers. Uh, A manger was essentially a ledge or a stall uh, on which hay or other food would be placed for animals to eat. It it essentially was an outdoor feeding trough. Now, is that where you would put your newborn baby? It's not where I would put my newborn baby, right? This is not the normal place for babies. But that's where this baby would be. And how ironic and even more mind-blowing... It's unusual to find any baby there, but this baby there. Because if what the angel says is true, this baby is going to save the world. And if what the angel says is true, that this baby is the anointed one of God. And if what the angel says is true, this baby is God. And God, in a feeding trough, it reveals to us that Jesus is not only Savior, King, and God, but that he is humble is humble. Dr. Dr. Daryl Bach hits it on the head when he says this, as unbelievable as it may seem, the one with authority over salvation spends his first nights, not in a palace, but in the open air among simple people like the shepherds. Born, he says, in the ancient equivalent of a tent village, Jesus arrives to fulfill God's promise. Friends, Jesus is a humble king. The humility of Christ, I think, is well attested to In Philippians chapter 2, there in verses 5 through 8, Paul tells us as Christians that we should have the same attitude, the same humility as Christ did. And then he tells us about the humble attitude of Christ. I'll just read this for you. In verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What kind of mindset is that? Verse 6, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, that is, In heaven, something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped or or clinged to, your translation may say. In other words, when God the Father says, it's now time for you to add humanity to your divinity and go into the womb of that teenage girl, he didn't say, no, I'm going to cling to my spot here. He humbly laid it down. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, how? Being made in human likeness. And if that weren't enough, verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Friends, what kind of a death is death on a cross? It's excruciating, but, but maybe even more than that, it's humiliating. And so we see the, the humiliation and the humble nature of Jesus, even in his, his birth, and, and we see it in his death, do we not? And that's alluded to, it's sort of pointed to, even in this account. Notice, we get hints of his humble death. He, Jesus was wrapped in, in cloths. And he was lying in a manger. See, Jews would would do this with their infants. It was normal. They would take strips of of cloth and they would wrap the baby in that. That was normal. But here's the, uh, the interesting thing, that Jews would also do this when a person dies. So the cloths that were wrapped around Jesus when he was born looked forward to, pointed to the fact that someday this baby would die. And when this baby died, like this baby's birth, it was unique and significant. It was a part of God's plan to make him so that he could be our Savior. You could say he was born to die. One person puts it this way. Christ was content with a stable when he was born so that we could have a mansion when we die. I like that. So friends, have you received this humble king as your personal Savior? It's one thing to know about a baby being born. It's another thing to recognize that he is your savior and you must receive his gift of salvation. It's one thing to know and to sing Christmas songs about the birth of this child, but do you know that he is God's anointed? Do you know that he is God himself? Come to live a perfect life, to die for your sins, to be resurrected, to offer you forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and so much more. Friends, have you received this king? as your personal Savior. As we wrap up our sermon portion and prepare our hearts to sing about the birth of Messiah, what have we seen this morning? What child is this? He's good news. He's the best news ever. He's our Savior. He's the anointed one. He is God incarnate, and he is a humble king. So I'm going to ask one of our elders, Dan, to come and to pray for us, prepare our hearts to sing songs of worship to the birth of our Lord and Savior. So, Dan, would you pray for us, and then we'll sing.